Hello and welcome to our final episode of season two of Redeeming Disorder. Yes, um, man, what a ride this has been. This has been such a cool season because I feel like we got to talk to some really incredible people, uh, some people I really look up to and some people who just have really powerful stories and um, use art as a way to communicate their stories. Yeah. It's been awesome. Yeah, I felt like this season I spent less time learning how to podcast and a little more time than <laughs> learning from our guests because we had such a yes. varied uh, group this season. And I think, yeah, I think our guests just were diverse in opinion and in perspective on mental health. And I learned a ton. Yeah, yeah. And today it seems uh, just such a perfect way to end it um, because we have a guest on who's just been around this mental health world, been very outspoken for mental health for a very long time. And um, it's funny, a couple years ago, some of my friends invited me to a reading at a well-known bookstore here in Nashville called Parnassus. And I got there a little late thinking like, okay, I've never heard of this guy. So I'm going to go and let go in late and let the bookstore fill up. Um, so I don't have to talk to people I don't want to. <laughs> and then um, and then I arrived and there was this huge crowd like going out of the store into the street. And people were standing there and they're all clutching this book in their hands called If You Feel Too Much. And so for the next hour, I stood in the back, uh, barely seeing through the crowd of people as this guy, this writer, uh, Jamie Twerkowski, talked about mental health in a way I'd never heard anyone talk about it, and especially a guy. And so um, it's just so cool. And then fast forward a couple years, and the same guy is a New York Times bestselling author, and we get to have him on Redeeming Disorder podcast. So it's kind of a cool thing that kind of went full circle for me. Um, but with that in mind, we should just go ahead and dive on into this interview. Yeah, let's do it. Welcome to Redeeming Disorder, where we delve into the world of mental disorder. To overcome stigma, redeem perceptions, and start a conversation. So today our guest is Jamie Twerkowski, the author of If You Feel Too Much and founder of nonprofit called To Write Love on Our Arms. For the past 11 years, Jamie and his nonprofit team have traveled to music festivals, high schools, colleges, and conferences to help people struggling with depression, addiction, self-injury, and suicide know that they are not alone. So uh, Jamie, thanks for being here today. We're really excited to talk to you, um, especially someone who's been having this conversation about mental health for so long. Oh, thank you guys for having me, and, and thanks for wanting to talk. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. Your mission is really close to home, and it's inspiring how long and how successfully you've been carrying that out more than a decade now, um, wanting to connect people who are struggling or might deal with thoughts of suicide, depression, etc., with uh, resources and with care. It's really awesome to see. Oh, thank you so much. So can you tell us a little bit about your story behind, um, before you even started your nonprofit, uh, what was your first introduction to mental health? I would say my first 
introduction to mental health was my first real relationship, my first significant girlfriend, or I guess I should just say my first girlfriend, um, mm -hmm. struggled with depression and I really didn't understand it and I had good intentions and honestly probably did more harm than good. And I think uh, ironically coming out of that relationship, maybe experienced depression in my own life for the first time and uh, I think realized I had a lot to learn about mental health. Yeah, yeah I, I can relate to you. I feel like um, before I experienced it myself, I said all the wrong things to people who were struggling. Um, and then when I was struggling, I remember somebody telling me uh, something like, you know, my mental health issues uh, and quote unquote were an excuse for acting badly. And, um, and I think like, I mean, I, I could have seen myself saying that too, but um, what do you say to people who don't really understand mental health? Uh, first off, that it's real and it matters and it affects millions of people. And, you know, in terms of what to say, I think we would just invite people to learn. You know, if you want to care about someone, if you want to love someone, you know, I think part of that is, is trying to relate and, and trying mm -hmm. to empathize with their circumstances and with what life looks like and feels like for them, you know? So if you're trying to care about someone who struggles with a mental illness and you don't really relate, I think you have to do your best to, to learn as much as you can. Um, yeah. I really liked in your, sorry, I really liked how in your TED talk you had that point about relatability and tried to sort of pitch it to everyone where you said, uh, you know, we all kind of tell ourselves stories and desire and depression, or maybe you want to call it pain, are parts of those stories. And uh, that struck me as really a powerful way to go at it because I, I think that's the crux of the issue sometimes is people who... Uh, don't think they relate to it or imagine people who are depressed or who deal with a mental health issue existing on some other plane or being something removed from them. And I mean, that must be a constant challenge getting that relatability. Honestly, not really for us because we're, you know, and I, I tell people this a lot, like we have our hands full with people who do get it, <laughs> you know, so mm -hmm. I'm not really yeah. in the business of trying to sell people on the idea that mental health exists, like we, we got a line of people that for them, the light bulb is going off, whether, you know, for them, they're struggling, uh, they're concerned about someone who's struggling, they've lost someone. Um, you know, so honestly, it's like, it's real. And, you know, it's, I, I don't know, I don't have a, a ton of bandwidth for trying to, um, you know, it's just as real as physical health. <laughs> um, and I, I think I'm right. I, I prefer the, the focus that we have, which is just trying to bring hope to people who are in need of hope, you know, as opposed to trying to convince people that depression is a real thing. Sure, sure. It does seem that uh, the convincing goes further in the mental health space, or not goes further, but is useful in the mental health space as far as um, getting people on board with getting things like mental health covered because I know what you do is connecting people who are struggling with uh, providers, which um, that makes sense that you know your role wouldn't necessarily entail that. But um, 
I think we could all see the the use for it. Yeah, definitely. You know, I I think um, we also just want to normalize the conversation. So it's it's not so much to say, hey, here's this thing that's super scary and 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 you know, I promise it's real. But I think we love to hopefully communicate in a way that's disarming. You know, that says, hey, this is just part of being alive. You know, and mm-hmm. and maybe not everyone listening can relate to the word depression but my hunch is everyone can relate to questions or struggle or moments of grief or sadness and and so in all of that this stuff is is just part of this human experience and uh yeah. you know you talked about honesty and and so i think we love to maybe invite people to just think differently about it and just to realize this stuff is it's already part of life and, and what if we just started to believe that we could be really honest about it yeah. It seems like story. I've I've um read your blog a little bit and um I was listening to your book today. Um but um but I think story seems like to be a huge thread um uh, for you in talking about these issues. Uh can you talk a little bit more about that and why you that why that's such a focal point? Yeah. And you know, story's a funny one because it it's such a buzzword these days and uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and that's maybe not a good or bad thing. It's certainly not necessarily a bad thing, but, um, you know, we grew out of a story. We, we didn't, I didn't mean to start a charity or a movement. I I just tried to tell a story and, and really that story took on a life of its own and, and, and kind of gave birth to this organization. Um, and with that, you know, we, we started by telling the real story of one person, uh, who was cared for by a, a handful of friends, myself included. And and so with that, we think it's really relatable and we love to bring it back, you know, to hopefully anyone we encounter and say, this isn't so much about my friend Renee's story being extraordinary. It's not about me being some incredible storyteller. Um, we love this idea that every person everywhere is living a story that matters and, you know, when you think about mental health, even to the the point of suicide, I think we are asking people not to give up mm-hmm. on their story. And we're asking people to believe that their story can change and that their story can get better and, and that they can experience healing. They can get to a place of experiencing joy. Um, so I think I just really like the the framework of this idea that we were born from a story as an organization and now we're, we're trying to, you know, shine the light on each individual story. Even if, even if those are folks I'll never get the chance to meet, we just want to share this idea that, that every person is living a story that matters. And it's not, it's not so much that it needs to matter um, to this nonprofit team or staff, but the idea that you deserve people in your community, people in your life who are characters in your story, um, that that's a huge part of what makes for a, a good story it is, mm-hmm. is that you wouldn't walk through it alone and you wouldn't feel like you are alone in the midst of it. Right. I mean, the response to you sharing that initial story of Renee was, you've talked about it was really powerful and kind of wowed you. Uh, what was the most surprising at that point with the resonance that that had? Was it just the sheer number of people who responded yeah, you know, I think um, 
at first I shared it with friends and, and, you know, family members. And so after a few weeks to be hearing from people in not only other States, but other countries, uh, was just such a surprise. And, and then, yeah, I think at a certain point, um, you know, had to settle into the idea that this was going to keep going. Not, you know, I couldn't know for how long or to what extent, but you kind of go from being wowed by it to trying to figure out how to be a good steward of, of what's happening. And, and, um, you know, just felt like it was this incredible opportunity, not only to be a part of a, a conversation, but even in a way to help lead that conversation. And, um, yeah. it was certainly overwhelming and intense at times. And I'm so thankful that now there's a whole team of us, that it's not just me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, just, just to begin to hear from more and more people every day, it was very much this, you know, this snowball effect. Why do you think people responded that way? Like, do you think there, at the time, there wasn't really much around that talked about that? Um, you know, I, I think a few factors. I mean, I'm certainly not the first to talk about mental health or, or pain and hope. Um, we started in, you know, we started on social media. We started back in 2006 on MySpace. There was a strong connection to the music community, uh, just because some of the first people to support us were friends in this, um, you know, in this, in this alternative music community. And more than anything, I think there's just a need, you know, Renee's story touched on things that are just part of being human. And, and in some ways it's a very painful story. And and yet we would like to believe it's also a hopeful story. And, And I think people, somehow felt permission, you know, in, in reading this story that was told in a way that was very honest, um, that maybe they could also be honest about their own story or, or even the stories around them. I, I'm just thinking about starting, I mean, I'm not actually thinking, I'm just thinking of being in your shoes, um, and starting a nonprofit and just the challenges that would come from that. Um, and to kind of, would be my challenges. So I'm not, you know, don't think I'm projecting that on you. But one of them, I don't know if I could handle hearing story after story after story and without feeling kind of helpless. Um, Did you ever experience that? Yeah, definitely. And that's something that our team, you know, our staff and our interns, even our volunteers that everyone, you know, I think can relate to and, and, um, has to, you know, experiences at times. So I think that's, that's part of being human. You know, if you, if you put yourself out there and you care and you want to respond, um, this idea that it's, uh, it's going to be overwhelming at times. And so I think what we had to do and hopefully what we continue to do is set up a system that's bigger than any one person. And, and also that doesn't, really position us as the heroes. You know, we, we yeah. like to be a, um, a small part of the process and really we're, we're redirecting people back into their own communities, into their, at times their own family or certainly to professional help, hopefully in their area. And we might get to be a part of their story for a moment. You know, there may be some exchange, uh, they may feel alone and reach out. Uh, but we love this idea of, of not, not saying, hey, we're here to be your new best friend or your pen pal. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, we, we say, hey, you actually deserve more than 
we can realistically give. Um, and we want to give you something of value in this moment, but the real help, the real change is going to happen over time in relationships with the people around you and, and with the people that are providing professional help in the place that you live. Yeah. So, I mean, hearing relatable stories and being able to open up in that way is so powerful and yet isn't a magic bullet is kind of what you're saying. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, and honestly, at this point, I give the credit to our interns because they're the ones five days a week that spend a good part of the day responding to the messages that come in. And, you know, 11 years ago, that was me. And those were MySpace messages. And, and honestly, the yeah. content, the, the questions and confessions and stories haven't changed all that much. But thankfully, there's a whole team. But there's still moments where, you know, someone will read a message that's overwhelming and they need to you know, take a walk or take a break or, or even in a yeah. way lean on the person to their left or their right and say, Hey, I'm, I'm stuck. This is really heavy. You know, can you look at this? What, what would you say? Um, so at this point it feels a lot healthier to know that, you know, the collective weight of all of these messages and interactions, it, it falls on a team now. Hmm. I, I feel like we can relate on like a tiny level and that we're, like trying to build a baby version of what you've done where it, I think really that's one of the big impactful moments of us doing this podcast is when we started getting emails about it and about people sharing their stories. And I know I relate to what you just said as far as um, processing that and you know talking to Laura about it. But did you know immediately when you started getting that kind of feedback that you wanted to go this direction, as you say, be, be a steward of, of that energy and help people? Or was there a process of, you know, after people responded to your story um, or to the story you told of figuring out what to do? And was it a long process? Um, I don't, it wasn't, a, it wasn't all that long of a process. I, I met Renee at the end of February in 2006. I, wrote the story, you know, I think early March, 2006, and we had the first t-shirts uh, printed at the end of, end of March. And then I ended up quitting my Hurley job, which I thought was my dream job at the time. Um, I ended up quitting that a few months later, uh, that summer, June or July. Um, and it was, it was definitely a lot to navigate, but I think in a way it was such a natural progression. There was, I don't, remember a day where it was like, well, I guess there would be the day I left my Hurley job. But what I tell people all the time is like, we had such an unusual beginning because so many people have an idea, but they have no income and they have, you know, either a tiny audience or they don't have an audience. And we yeah. had an audience and money coming in before we even had this idea in terms of starting an organization, wow. which yeah. is an amazing problem to have, but certainly it was challenging. And, and and so I think it was really just the logic of these messages are coming in from people, you know, who are struggling. Of course, I want to respond. And, and then I think you just you do that day after day and you realize these these T-shirts are selling and people are responding yeah. to the story. And, and it just kind of gives you permission to think, wow, where is this going and, and what could this be? And also just how could we organize it? So going back to just saying the difficulties of starting a nonprofit like this, the other thing that I could foresee if I ever did something like this is ego kind of getting in the way. I, I really love that you guys 
you haven't let that get in the way because you are sending people out to the, their communities and where they can get help. But I think it would be really easy to kind of like, you know, make it all about you guys and you, you don't do that. So I'm sure that's not an accident. Um, is that, was that a process or did it just happen naturally? Oh, I, you know, ego's part of life. Um, you know, that's a challenge for any of us. My life looks a lot different today. In some ways, my life looks a lot different today than when this started. Um, you know, I'm 37 now. I was 26 when this started. Um, you know, I'm a person with an ego. Uh, I'm, a, you know, we have a, a team. Like, I think everyone has one. It's just kind of what you do with it. And, and if you have oh, people yeah. around you that can be honest with you. Uh, I think I've been fortunate to have some people I really look up to and respect who, who have also become friends who maybe have a bit of influence or get a unique amount of attention and they just live with a ton of humility. And so I think I just saw it modeled. Um, and the other part is like, you know, that I didn't invent hope. I didn't, you know, I didn't write down, the idea that people should go to counseling on a napkin. Like I'm, I'm just sharing these ideas that aren't even really mine. You know, we're just, we're just trying to point people to a few things that we believe and even that I believe. And, and if, if people associate me with that and, and think highly of me, that's awesome. But I think it's, I'm able to keep in the front of my mind, the idea that, um, you know, this is a really privileged position. I get to do a job that I, I really love. I get to bring my heart to work and, and I get to talk about things that matter. And at the same time, it's really humbling. You know, we do hear heavy stories. I meet, you know, mothers that have lost a son to addiction or, or they lost, you know, their, their daughter to suicide. And, and, and there's just so much at stake. So, you know, there were certainly growing pains. There were certainly challenges. There's been relational challenges, um, you know, all sorts of, of things that are just part of growing up and part of building a team and working with other people. But, uh, anyway, I do, I do appreciate the compliment and, um, yeah, humility is a really powerful thing. It's important. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Do you think that role is born out of the, uh, the space and the topic at all? Because it seems like with mental health, this overwhelming response that was surprising, it was surprising because the subject matter uh, is treated in a way that encourages people, you know, who might have things to say, not to say them so openly. And so it's almost as like once you opened up with this, um, this entire world emerged of people who really are interested in this topic and can use these resources. And, you know, really what's left to do is to connect the groups and you know if there weren't that stigma I guess I would imagine it would be happening more on its own do you think it's a result of the um of that culture I guess that you were able to fill that role um what, what do you mean specifically like fill fill what role maybe fill the role of connecting people who struggle with mental health to providers and in telling people stories because you know if it weren't stigmatized at all you mentioned you didn't like scribble uh, that yes. uh, therapy could be useful on a napkin, which is funny. But it's, uh, you know, I think it's a good point that uh, what you're doing is really simple in a way, but it seems like it's so needed because 
people struggle to do that simple thing of opening up or maybe knowing who to go to because it's kind of a hushed issue. Oh yeah. You know, I, I think in a way it's like, you know, bringing water to the desert because that stigma is real, but at the same time it, it shouldn't be there. It's built on bad ideas. You know, the idea that we shouldn't talk about mental health or we can't talk about addiction or self-harm or suicide, you know, those are, those are lies. And, and so I think, um, as you pointed out, we've certainly seen people respond in a really surprising way. Um, and in a way it's like, Hey, there's a, there's a conversation, you know, that they get wind of or they stumble upon and, and they realize it's a conversation they, would love to be a part of and in some ways need to be a part of, you know? So I, I do agree that um, I think because of the stigma and because people maybe for a long time felt like they, they were alone if they struggled in these ways or, or they were alone in terms of thinking about it or wanting to talk about it. And then you realize there's thousands of people all around the world that are, you know, in some way participating in this conversation and, um, you know, I think the shortest version when people ask me like, Hey, what, why, why did it work? Why does it continue to work? I think there's just such a need there that, that so many people struggle. So many people live with shame and isolation and all of a the sudden they feel like, Hey, maybe it's okay to talk about this stuff. And maybe there's a whole bunch of other people who are talking about this stuff and, and maybe I'm not weird. Maybe I'm, you know, not some outsider. Maybe I'm just, a human being who deserves to be honest and deserves whatever help I need. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was reading, uh, I read one of your latest posts about um, just for national suicide prevention and uh, something really stuck out to me. I mean, there were a bunch of things on there that I had read before. Um, but Spencer, I think you mentioned the, to this to me too. And it's, uh, this stat that says 121 Americans die by suicide each day, and 93 of those people are men. Um, and I just that's completely blew my mind because I I guess as a girl I only think about girls who are going through civil, similar struggles that I went through when I was younger. Um, but that's a really high number. Um, why do you, why do you think that is? Do you think there's a bigger stigma with men than with women when it comes to mental health? Yeah, I, I definitely do. You know, I think you could, there's so many sort of cliche sort of stereotypical ideas that a man should be strong and a man should be tough and a man can do it on his own and he can, you know, provide for his family and do whatever it takes. You know, there's all these kind of recycled ideas, even the idea that a man doesn't show emotion, a man doesn't cry. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it only makes it harder for a guy to put his hand up and say, hey, I'm really struggling. Uh, I'm really sad. I'm really lost. I really need help. Um, And so I think a lot of guys just bottle it up and they maybe buy into those bad ideas. Maybe they've never seen it modeled, you know, certainly in, in, um, in some communities it's worse than others, but if you're a man who grew up and you've never been around an adult male who, who did talk about his feelings or his struggles, um, 
I think it's, it's easy to connect the dots and say, how are you going to know what to do or how to respond? Um, so yeah, those are, those are definitely some things, but I, I'm, I'm the same way, you know, that when I'm, when we were putting this together, um, that, that number definitely stood out to me, the one that you noticed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, I guess, not too often talked about, and it probably goes along with just the general theme of, of guys not talking about their issues in the first place, that uh, they don't feel maybe free in that way. And do you think that the best way to help is sort of showing models, or do you think it's just sort of a... A chain reaction snowball effect where uh, when guys start seeing that that will uh, really free them up or are there other things that you think uh, are more important to to making that progress um you know we think and you can i'll, I'll say something and then if it's not if it's not what you meant we can talk you know we can keep going but um i just think you know we want to normalize the conversation and and we've come to see and believe that the stigma begins to go away as soon as we break the silence, you know, as soon as we start to talk openly about how we're doing or if we're struggling, um, if we need help, if we're getting help, that stigma gets pushed aside. Um, and so I think we just, you know, if, if you, if you know someone, if you know a man or a woman, young or old, if you know someone, and you're concerned, I mean, we would encourage people to start by expressing that concern. Um, you know, it's one of the amazing things about relationships. We, we certainly can't control the response that we're met with, but we do build trust over time. And, you know, you can say something to a friend that uh, a stranger probably could not. And so the hope is that, you know, we can show up in love for the people that we care about and we're concerned about. And then with that, that we would also be willing to be honest and tell them the truth. And, and if you, you know, if, if you're just wishing that someone would get help, we, we, we think you start there and, and you say that and, yeah. and let people know that, you know, great help is out there. And maybe you even do the homework and say, hey, here's a, a couple counseling offices that I'm aware of. Um, hey, I would go with you to the first appointment, you know, whatever it takes to just be a part of that process of saying, hey, I'm you're not alone. I'm with you. I love you. I'm concerned about you. And, and let's get you some help. You know, we, we talk about like broken bones or flat tires. There's so many ways that the things break and we respond by getting help and there's no stigma. And I think what we really dream about is that, you know, someday mental health could be the same way that it wouldn't have to be any different than the check engine light coming on you know, or, or your phone breaking. It's just this idea right. that Man, I, I need to get this fixed. And so I need to go to someone who knows how to fix this. Right. And there would be no shame, which I think is a powerful vision. It's like, no, no one is, uh, would refuse to take their kid or their friend to a doctor, a medical doctor, a physician, but suddenly sometimes you mentioned, you know, in certain, uh, areas or communities or maybe a certain family unit, um, it's, it's hard to do that without shame. Um, and I am curious, do you have a suggestion for someone who doesn't really have anyone to lean on? Maybe someone who's young or growing up in a family without really family members or friends that would sympathize with them? You know, do you have a, uh, a suggestion of where they could turn, whether it's, a, a a resource online or just some, 
community outreach? Because you really emphasize community. Yeah. Um, there's two that come to mind, especially if someone is, is really, really struggling. One is crisis text line. Uh, anyone in the U.S. at any time, 24 hours a day, they can send a text to 741-741 and get a response from someone who is trained as a, as a crisis counselor. And so we love to, you know, kind of be a broken record, just, just celebrating what those guys do and, and letting, letting people know it's such a great resource, especially because so many people are comfortable texting, um, even about difficult right. things. It's probably the way that we will be the most comfortable. Um, and then there's also 1-800-273-TALK, um, you know, the National Suicide Hotline, um, the, the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And, and so we point to both of those as, as great 24-7 resources. Um, and then with that, man, it's such a, it's such a heartbreaking thing. It's so, it sounds so simple, but it's a reality, as you pointed out, that so many people are lonely. Um, and I wish there was, you know, a magic formula. I think one thing I love to offer people, um, is just to, to maybe you start by doing the things that you love. Um, you, maybe it's a sport that you play, maybe it's a hobby that you come back to, um, and maybe you find other people that that enjoy those things as well, you know. Yeah. Um, that maybe just by you being yourself, you could you could find one other person or two or three other people who um, who do that as well. I have a funny example, but we 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 rented out this roller skating rink last night for this intern goodbye party, and we had it for two hours. And immediately following it was a. Uh, a women's roller derby team practice, um, which I had never been to a women's roller derby team practice. And, and the, as much as it was this setting that was super unusual for me, I, I just loved that these women had probably found friendship and community, you know? Yeah. Um, and it was such a, like, you know, s- such a, you know, when you run down the list of sports that are popular or that you're aware of, it'd probably be, you know, outside the top 10. And, um, and I think I just smiled, uh, at, at the idea that hopefully these women have, have found community in, in participating in this thing together. Um, and you know, even things, even things like for a lot of people, they find it in the church or they find it in, mm-hmm. I think just pursuing things that they're passionate about. Um, you know, it could be a book club, you know, there's, there's so many different ones, but I, I know part of it is, and this is a hard one, but just kind of being willing to put yourself out there and, and leave your comfort zone. You know, I, I mean, I feel like I joke about it where, you know, if, if you're on the couch watching Netflix five nights a week and then complaining that you, you're not making new friends, it, it can be kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know? Sure. Um, so I do think it's one where you gotta you gotta keep going for it, and you gotta keep putting yourself out there. Yeah, I love that suggestion because it's uh, it's if you don't have anyone, you know, the the people who naturally you would have the kinship with to express your uh, your dark thoughts or concerns, um, you know, I feel like you do. It's hard to really open up with that and go that deep that quickly when you don't have some kind of a relationship as a basis. Not that it's impossible, but it's, uh, it's certainly harder for people. And so as far, you know, 
the texting, the hotlines being an easier way, I think this also seems like a, a way to really ease the burden, you know, connecting over something, whether it's a hobby or whatever it is. And, then, and yeah. Oh, I was, and then we just love to, to celebrate counseling. You know, I'm even personally, I'm someone who goes to counseling and, um, for most people, I know for me, it's, it's an hour a week and, you know, that might start out as this really intimidating hour, but I know for me, it, it's honestly become, you know, one of my favorite hours of the week and not because it's mm. easy, but, but because it really feels worth it. And there's a sense of progress and a sense of healing. And, and it's just kind of, you talked about having that outlet. It, it really becomes that. And, and certainly there's the challenge of, finding a counselor and being able to pay for it. And, you know, can we afford it? Does insurance cover it? Um, but we love to just encourage people, you know, whether you have a hundred friends or you're in search of an honest conversation, I think counseling can be such a good thing, especially for someone who's struggling. And it doesn't mean you're going to go forever. You know, it could be, it could be two or three or six months, but um, if you need that outlet, I know for me, I've, I've really come to appreciate having counseling as that outlet. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, me too. I want to echo that. Go to counseling. Everybody can use it. <laughs> yeah, I think it is something that's useful for anyone just as a tool. And uh, thinking of it that way, I think, is uh, another step toward breaking down the, uh, the closeness people have around the issue of mental health in general, I think, because as long as it's associated with someone who or it's framed as, you know, fixing a problem or someone who really has issues or it's only for this certain type of person, um, the dichotomy between uh, how people perceive the mentally ill and how people perceive the healthy, I think, continues. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. Um, one thing that's, that's almost, I guess, ironic is sometimes I think about how how simple counseling can be, you know, because sometimes people build it up and, you know, we use this clinical language and maybe people are afraid of mental health or talking about mental health. But when I go to counseling, it's, it's two people in a room having a conversation, <laughs> you know, and yeah. I think it, it kind of comes back to this idea that as people, we're actually, we're wired for that. Like we need that. And, you know, you talked about that outlet and, you know, sometimes I think like, man, it's the one hour a week where I can just totally talk about whatever's going on, whatever's bothering me, whatever's, you know, has me mad or sad or confused. And, um, but it's not like this big complicated thing. It's not this magic yeah, formula. I mean, totally fulfilling a need. Yeah. And, and yet I love the simplicity of it as well. I think the older I get, the more I realize health in general is really simple. It's like having friends, getting sleep, you know, eating, eating well, and just like the, you know, it just all kind of goes back to the basics. Um, but I actually, I love counseling too. Cause I think, especially when you work, I, I have a job, my day job is I listen a lot to people and I listen to, you know, what's going on in their life, which I love. But it's like so awesome to have one hour a week where you get to kind of talk about yourself and you're not even you're like, well, I paid for it. <laughs> you know, like I don't, I don't even care like what they're thinking or worrying about if I'm talking too much. Um, and I think that can be just really freeing if you need yeah. that. I think mm -hmm. 
the other part you you touched on, like you could really call that self care, mm-hmm. and and it is it's simple stuff. You know, it's stuff that on some level we know or we've heard, but um, it, it's so easy to skip those steps. And you know, sometimes it's like, hey, I'm really struggling, or I'm I'm really sad, or I'm really down, or I, I think I'm depressed. And and you know, you shared some really simple examples. It's like, okay, well, do you sleep enough? Do you do you eat decently? Do you exercise? Like there's just this really simple checklist of how to take care of yourself. And, you know, and yet I think sometimes people think it's going to be way more complicated and there can be certainly more to it, but it's, I I love to offer some of those simple things as like, all right, go to counseling, have real relationships, like where you can have honest conversations, sleep eight hours a night, do stuff that makes you smile, get some exercise, like eat three times a day. Right. And all of a sudden you're like, okay, wow, I've heard of a lot of these things before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not like some secret that you traveled through the mountains and entered a cavern and unlocked a chest to find. <laughs> yeah. And I think it, you know, it, it's a bit of both. Like, you know, if you're maybe I'm a person who takes antidepressants and that's not something I could have figured out or, or orchestrated myself, but I love that part of it can be simple. And, um, you know, I have a friend who I've heard him talk about just, you know, depression, depression totally sucks. So I'm going to throw everything I can at it. And so the idea that you throw some things that are complicated, but you also throw some things that are super simple, um, like sleep and hobbies and exercise and, um, so to me, it's kind of cool that it's this whole spectrum of some things that are way outside our expertise, but some things we've known since we were kids. I'm just curious to hear a little bit more about uh, your thoughts on community because you talk about it a lot and I think it's important. And I'm curious if today you think the need for real conversations and relationships, like you said, and community is more pressing because of technology, more so than when you founded uh, To Write Out Love on Her Arms. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, and I think the irony of it for us is there's been times I've heard people talk about to write love on our arms as if we've created or, or intend to create sort of this online utopia, like where everyone gets it and everyone's nice and these are all the friends you need and this is the conversation you need. And, and I love, you know, Certainly, we want to be a source of hope and encouragement and resources. And, and, you know, I've heard stories of people connecting with friends through our social media or things like that. But you really touched on sort of the irony, which is, you know, I think it's always been true that the best thing, the top of the list is having a real relationship and a real conversation where you can look someone in the eyes and you can come back to that consistently Um, and and so to me, like social media, there's good and bad to it. We're we're thankful for the good. You know, you, you and I wouldn't be on this, this phone call, this podcast right now, if not for social media, you know, to write love on our arms wouldn't exist if not for social media. But I love that there's a certain part where we're saying, Hey, you gotta, you gotta either close your laptop or put your phone down and participate in some real relationships um, and again, even even using the simplicity of of counseling as, as like, you know, it's the one hour a week. I, I put my phone away and I look someone in the eyes and I, I talk and listen back and forth for an hour straight. <laughs> um, right. 
But anyway, I think I was just thinking that uh, social media is a fascinating one because there's a lot of good. Certainly we hear about the bad, but I think as you, as you touched on, like we want to point people back to this really old fashioned idea that like you need some real friends who live where you live. Um, yeah. And if you need help, you know, it's the same kind of thing. It's probably going to happen in this face to face setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I know so many people though, who are, I mean, you guys said it before, but just who are so lonely and don't know where to even start to get relationships. And I, I, I really think that's one of the biggest problems, you know, that causes all these issues, um, like addiction, you know, if you're not getting that one-on-one time with somebody where you feel known, you're going to, you know, try to fulfill that somewhere else. Um, I don't know. What do you, what I, you've already kind of said like where to start, but what are some things that you would like to change in the mental health world or what, what are some things that you wish, um, if you, you know, had a magic wand, you could just immediately change. Yeah. I mean, I I think first it is the, the stigma, you know, Mm -hmm. we really want to, and I said this earlier, but, um, we want to normalize the conversation. You know, we just want it to be disarming. It's hard enough to live with. And I hate that, you know, for so many people, they not only have to live with it, but they think they have to keep it a secret as well. Um, which only makes it worse, you know? So I think there's the stigma piece. Um, and then I think there's just kind of the, the financial element of, of healthcare. You know, I I would love it if there was no asterisk by mental health, that it would just be part of your plan, that if you're insured, um, it's not any different than any other time you need to see a doctor. Um, and, and we do see, you know, I think glimmers of hope and, and we hear people that are pleasantly surprised by their insurance policy. Um, I had someone really close to me say, Hey, I couldn't believe it. You know, my, my plan covers counseling. And and so for this person, it was best case scenario. Um, but we would love to see that, you know, for, I think a lot of people, they feel like not only with, with depression, but, but even more so with addiction that unless you have a ton of money in the bank, how could you ever pay for it? You know, yeah. and, and I think that's a heartbreaking thing for so many people and for so many families. So, um, you know, with that, outside of the magic wand, I, I want to say I, I get to meet people that work on a sliding scale. You know, I, I meet counselors that have, you know, they see people for $10 a week because that's what that person can afford. Hmm. Um, so there are good people doing good work um, who are not trying to get rich in the whole thing. Um, but I would love it if, if, um, you know, if healthcare and insurance could, could catch up. Uh, and a lot of that's, you know, beyond me, beyond my kind of realm of expertise. But I, I think for us where the, a lot of the focus lies is, is that stigma and that conversation piece of just, just trying to continue to invite people into the conversation and, and letting people know, Hey, it's totally okay to, talk about how you're doing and if you need help it's okay to ask for help and and hey what if we could help you connect to the resources that you need mm-hmm. yeah and for what it's worth i think in an indirect sort of way you are contributing toward that um more long-term goal of providing health care for people who really need it because i think that starts with culture and that starts with people really 
valuing and validating the the issue because no one would openly say, "Hey, I don't think um, I don't think that uh, bronchitis should be covered, you know, under health insurance." Totally. So I, I I do feel like we're hopefully moving in a good direction with as soon as people can understand uh, mental health issues and their validity. I hope to get to a place where no one would say, I don't think it should be covered. Yeah, no, I agree. And, um, I have, you know, I'm not a political expert, but I, I actually got to go to the white house during, um, the Obama administration. And I got to be a wow. part of a, a mental health, basically a, a gathering, a summit for mental health leaders. And there was 150 folks who work in mental health and, President Obama spoke and Vice President Biden. Uh, and it was this really incredible day. And really what they were talking about was this progress and was this kind of everything we're talking about right now. That's um, awesome. Yeah. And, and then obviously those guys no longer live at the White House. And, and so it's... Um, I have a feeling that's not happening at the White House right now. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So there's certainly the uh, the curiosity or even the uncertainty of of how that conversation and you know will play out in the future and, and even beyond just mental health but certainly with addiction which is something that we do see in the headlines right now just the hope that that our leaders will care and will do the right thing and and do everything they can to you know to keep people alive and to help people get the help they need well um i i just want to thank you for everything that you do with your nonprofit and just what you stand for. I personally know two people. Um, They're the, you know, the reason um, that I knew who you were and you really, you know, to write love on their arms really impacted them in a positive way. Oh man. Well, first off, thank you. I mean, that's super, that's super kind. Um, I, I feel really, lucky to be a part of something that's so much bigger than me, you know, and I'm aware that I have a unique part to play in the whole thing, but, but I, it's really humbling and it's really cool to, um, you know, just to meet so many people and to hear the stories of how they found out about to write love on our arms and what it means to them. And they might even live on the other side of the world. Um, cause people ask me, how do I start something big? And, and I love to sort of maybe surprise them and just say, well, first off, I don't know. But, but second, like I didn't, I didn't set out to start something big. I, I just, in a way, started something very small and hopefully did it in a way that was authentic. And for whatever reason, it, it had the chance to grow and, and to, you know, gain an audience and, and to live on. Um, so I, I, I kind of think we don't have a ton of control over where something goes or how many people respond. Like we can only do our best to, you know, be creative, be honest, tell stories that matter, live stories that matter. Um, I think there's certainly a place for, you know, great storytelling, great design, great language. Um, so I, I think again, in the spirit of throwing everything you can at it with, you know, for anyone starting a project or a business or an organization, um, you know, we, we have no shame in, in saying that we value design, we value good writing, we, we think about social media and how to use social media. We think about what it means to have a good website that people enjoy coming to. Um, 
but all of that circling back, I, I, I think um, for you guys or for anyone else, just to know that there's no shame in, in starting small, you know? And, and so I feel like for you guys yeah. to, doing a podcast, like you're, you're asking good questions. Like I do this stuff a lot and, and this, you know, you guys are super smart, you're thoughtful, you're caring. And I think that translates to the, the listener and the person on the other side that is going to want to keep coming back. Well, thanks. That's really kind. Um, it's funny. I feel like <laughs> I was digging for a compliment. I promise I wasn't. <laughs> no, no. But, compliments um, are great. People yeah. need friends. People need compliments. That's true. Well, um, well, everybody needs to go over to Write Love on Their Arms. Go to TWLOHA.com. And is there anywhere else that you want to direct people who are listening? No, I mean, the, the website is kind of the catch-all. You can, mm-hmm. you can find us on... Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, everywhere else. Okay. Well, awesome. Well, thanks again, um, Jamie, for coming on. And uh, can't wait to share this podcast with everybody. I am really grateful as well. It's uh, it's really cool. And to, to see both what you're doing and hear it from you yourself. And I love your advice of trying to do what we're doing authentically, regardless of the size, because... Uh, I, I do think that's you know something in your control more than how big something's going to be. Um, but it's awesome to look up to you doing it authentically on such a big scale. And I want to just thank you for for talking with us today. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much. I'll be I'll be cheering you guys on for sure. All right. So that was Jamie Twerkowski. That was a really enjoyable conversation. He's a, just such a compassionate guy that I mm-hmm. think you can't help but get that from talking to him. And it's going to be fun to follow him and everything he works on going forward and his organization to write love on her arms. Yeah, I agree. It's funny. I've been uh, following him on Twitter recently and uh, he's always like standing up for people and being like, Hey, think about this in a more empathetic way or think about this. And sometimes he gets beat down on oh, really? for like being a guy who is trying to stand up for those things. Yeah. So I, I am really glad that we got to have him on and I, I love everything he stands for. And for me, it was just a really cool way to kind of end my journey with uh, this podcast. Um, So, yeah, this is my last uh, season with Redeeming Disorder. And um, I just want to thank everybody. For me, like, this was such a crazy journey because I I randomly met Spencer, a guy who I just watched on TV, (laughs) and, and, like, met him. And then I was like, oh, we should start a podcast. And then he actually, like, took me up on it and came down to Nashville. And um, so it's just been such a cool experience for me. Uh, but it's not ending, right? right yes. Uh, the <laughs> if that was suspenseful for anyone, we're sorry. But uh, the podcast isn't <laughs> ending. We're not even uh, retiring from podcasting either, which we'll get into what we're up to. But yeah, you know, we got in a big fight, had some irreconcilable differences. <laughs> no, we're we just have a like kind of different visions for what we want to do in podcasting mm-hmm. and in creating content. Because you know, I've always had this mental health passion, and when I told Laura about what I wanted to write with the book project I have in mind, she really got excited as well. And and this was a blast to jump into, but going forward, we're both just excited about slightly different things. So Laura, do you want to just talk about what you're going to be up to? Because I think it'll be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I haven't like found the title or any of that, but I just have this vision for a podcast that will be uh, focused on just telling people's stories. I think 
I think as someone who's never been on TV, <laughs> Spencer, no, um, it, I think you can feel like you um, aren't, don't have much to say um, because you're, if you don't have a big platform or, and I, I think that's completely wrong. I think every individual person has this really cool story to tell. And so um, I am hoping to build a podcast that just lets regular people kind of tell their stories and more of like a, if you listen to Invisibilia or This American Life kind of yeah. that style. So um, it's going to be a very fun, creative adventure for me. And, uh, you know, keep up with me on Twitter if you want to see when I come out with that. I'm not surely sure when that's At happening. the Be Free Girl, if you forgot. Yeah, yeah, which I'm actually changing. So Oh, <laughs> I'm glad I brought that I know, up. I know. I'm changing that to probably just my name, which is Laura Bochansky. Um, and I, uh, I actually closed my business, which was called Be Free Health Coaching and the Be Free Girl. And so, um, so yeah, it's just going to be a really fun new season of life for me. Yeah, I'm excited for it, and I'll be following along for sure. Yeah. And then, hopefully, he'll be a guest. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Whatever you want. And then, um, redeeming disorder, as we said, is going to continue. We're going to take a little break, and uh, I'm really going to try and combine redeeming disorder with the writing I want to do. I mentioned kind of in the beginning of the season that I'm excited about writing a book on this subject, interviewing people, and so. I'm going to follow through on that in early 2018. I'm going to travel around and interview a bunch of people and I'm going to be combining with the podcast and it'll sort of follow that journey. So I'm really excited to bring all of that to you and stay engaged and stay uh, talking about this subject, which has really uh, been so rewarding for me. And um, it's, it's meant a lot hearing from all of you who also got something out of it. So I'm, I'm really appreciative to you, Laura, for, for doing this with me and appreciative to all of you listening and excited for what's ahead. Yeah. Well, I just want to say, um, I think it's been really cool for me to see Spencer. I mean, when you have a giant platform, when you've been on TV, like he has, and you could, you have a lot of choices of what you could do with that. And I think it's been really cool to see him use that for something so positive. So I I just wish him and Redeeming Disorder and all of that well. And I hope everyone will uh, pick up a copy of his future book. <laughs> <laughs> I know I will. <laughs> and um, I don't know. I'm just so excited for you. Awesome. Well, I, I think that completes the Hallmark card. I'm feeling good about it. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's I great. It's all that. good. I'm, I'm sincere and I know you are too. Yeah. All right. So, all right. Until next time, we'll see you all. As always, to stay in touch with us by email and hear about the podcast behind the scenes, you can visit us on redeemingdisorder.com. And special thanks to Hetty, who donated our theme music from her song Shipwrecking Me from her latest album. Be sure to check it out at hettymusic.com. We hope you feel empowered to start a conversation of your own. Thank you.